pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Yeah, I obviously got hit on the pad and um, looked down to Petey and, and Petey sort of said, look up there and I turned around and, and said, what do you reckon? And that was a bit of a brain fade on my behalf and um, yeah, shouldn't have done that. I saw that two times happening when I was batting out there. I pointed it out to the umpire as well, that it's happened twice that I've seen their players looking upstairs for confirmation. And that's why the umpire was at him. You know, when he turned back, the umpire knew exactly what's going on because we observed that, we told match referee also, and the umpires that they've been doing that for the last three days, and this has to stop because there's a line that you don't cross on the cricket field. Sledging and playing against the opponents is different, but um, I don't want to mention the word, but it falls in that bracket. So. Um, I would never do something like that on the cricket field. Is that what <laughs> I didn't say that, you did. Well, it is all happening in India. Smith and Kohli are at it. The BCCI and Cricket Australia are locking horns. And this is the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas. And joining me this week, making his podcast debut, is none other than Scott Bailey from the Australian Associated Press. You've replaced James Smith in the office, and now you're replacing him in the podcast. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, hopefully I can live up to... Was he a co-founder, I keep hearing? Well, he thinks he's a co-founder. <laughs> he's actually not a co-founder. But, yeah, so you've replaced him. Welcome to the show. Can't wait to talk some cricket with you. A lot to get through. And the other panellist this week is my old friend Paul Dennett, fresh from his radio debut on Talk Sport in England, and he was introduced as cricket journalist. So how are you, Paul, cricket journalist? <laughs> I'm very good, man. I asked for a cricket podcaster, and they made me cricket journalist, so I'm not complaining. <laughs> Well done, you've been bumped up already. Well, a lot to get through, but let's start with the Steve Smith allegations of cheating. We're going to start right off with what Virat Kohli said. He used the C word. Do you think that Steve Smith was actually cheating in this test match? Just to clarify, the C word was cheating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think cheating is a it's a big word to throw around. I mean, you can be... You could say that he acted immorally potentially he, he made a mistake but the punishment is that he didn't get to use the review and the umpire said that so for Coley to expect the ICC to come down on him what are they actually going to do in as a punishment there's there's no punishment for this yeah but he he was caught going outside the rules and I love Steve Smith I would love to blindly defend him but coming up into a press conference and saying I had a brain fade is that an excuse for breaking the rules Oh, I think it's a reason. I think, look, I think in, in, in a normal world, what would happen is after Steve Smith said, yeah, I did the wrong thing, he would have said, I'll never do it again. Virat Kohli would have said, yep, that's cool, move on. And this would have been a tiny little asterisk against um, what has been a wonderful test match. And everyone would talk about what a great test match it was. The fact that it has been allowed to blow out of all proportion, I think reflects poorly on um, the, the parties involved. I think this should have been nipped in the bud and not allowed to become the big talking point that it has been. Well, that was Virat Kohli's making that. I mean, he, he went into the press conference and blew this out of the water, although he, I mean, he was asked these questions. So I guess you've got to give him that leeway. The ICC haven't announced any sanctions, so they're not finding any of the players from this game for their behaviour or looking at the reviews. So they obviously think the game was played within the rules. I guess one of the allegations that Coley said was that Australia had been doing it during the test match, not just at that instance. Now, to refute that, Lehman, James Sutherland, the ICC have all said there's no evidence of that. But I guess that's a broader allegation that it was systematic cheating throughout the 
game. And you can't imagine that this isn't just going to turn the heat up on this series now. Firstly, I mean, this is Australia versus India, isn't it? I mean, every time these two countries play in a close series, we end up with this kind of controversy. And let's be honest, it's great. You know, as far as what Coley's alleging, and look, I'm sure Smith did ask the dressing room for advice on that one occasion, and he he has admitted to that. But is Coley suggesting that Australia's got some kind of Hawkeye mechanism up there that's happening straight away that can, you know, tell the Australian management that, yes, a decision can or won't be overturned? I mean, that that's a little bit ridiculous in some ways. Yeah, I think that if you were looking up, all you'd be going on would be that they've been watching it on TV and they might have been able to see something live, but it's 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 drawing a long bow. Mm. Um, I, I think that Coley's point, let's just say that, that, that... Let's just say that Australians were doing this on other instances. What I find strange is how come the video evidence hasn't come to light, given that when it happened this time, within a millisecond, the umpires were all over it, the players were all over it, the cameras were all over it. If it had happened previously, why didn't all that happen... And given that I would imagine people have been combing back through the videos so far to date, I haven't seen any evidence of it. So, and even if even if it has been um, something that they've done more than once, I think it's bad, and I think they deserve to be punished for it. But the way that they're talking about, and, you know, former captains have come out, like um, Kapil Dev, who hardly ever tweets, has taken to Twitter to say what a you know disappointing act of sportsmanship this is. I think it's it's bad, but I don't think it's that bad. I think if if Steve Smith had claimed a catch where the ball had bounced a metre in front of him, then I would agree with him. If he'd bowled a beamer deliberately, then I would agree. But, I mean, DRS, as far as India are concerned, has been in for, for five minutes. It's not as though, you know, in the time-honoured annals of the game since 1877, you never consulted your dressing room for DRS reviews. It's it's I don't think it's that bad a, bad a thing. And if I've, if I've learnt one thing from sport, you know, is that, okay, so Coley might not want Just to go... Just one thing? Well, I haven't learned many things at all, but pretend I have. (laughs) Coley might not want to go on record, let's say, and say, oh, it was this instance or was that instance that Australia was encouraged to review or not review. But the BCCI, Indian team management, Rat Coley himself, Anil Kumble, surely at some point by now, if they believed there were other instances and they had proof of it, they would have gone to the Indian media and say, hey, have a look at when, let's say, I don't know, Dave Warner reviewed his... Yeah, like the Aussies did when they thought South Africa were doctoring the ball. Yeah, they would have been... were doctoring the ball. There would have been some kind of, you know, message Fact. somewhere. And by now, the Indian media would have said, hey, look at this instance. This exactly. is when it's happened. It, obviously, in my opinion, obviously they haven't got, you know, this evidence that Coley speaks about all these and, and maybe situations. Maybe the Indians still don't quite understand why the DRS works or the way it works. So I know a lot of the times the players will look up after the fact to see if they made the right decision yeah. in referring or not referring. Mm. And, you know, like with the, when Virat Kohli, they didn't refer one in the first test and it would have been out. You could see them looking up afterwards. So that's that's one area. But let's, let's now move on to the Indian captain because he was in the spotlight in this test match. Ian Healy came out in the press and, and said, I'm losing respect for him, Virat Kohli. He's not only now continuing his disrespect of the Australian players and umpires, but I think he's putting pressure on his own players. That's what Healy said. We saw during the test Kohli getting very animated and really getting in the face of the Australians. Do, do we think Virat Kohli overstepped the line during the game or was it well within the spirit of the game? I think Kohli in general occasionally goes over the line, but I think I really like him as a cricketer. I think that I wish that he was an Australian. I love the way that he plays the game, and every now and again he probably goes a little bit too far, as many of the Australians do. <clears throat> the one point that I thought that was interesting about what Ian Healy said was, I think some players would probably in the own in the Indian side be 
you know, standing at first slip thinking, oh, geez, I don't want to drop this ball because Coley will absolutely maul me. And that's probably not imbuing with them with the sense of calm relaxation and an ability to perform that if, say, Mark Taylor was the captain and they knew that obviously he's going to be disappointed if I drop the ball, but I'm not going to get a rocket. I think maybe Coley on that front could potentially change things a little bit. Do you think uh, the BCCI statement that Mr. Virat Coley is a mature and seasoned cricketer and his conduct on the field has been exemplary rings true there, Scott? I don't know that you'd say exemplary, but having said that, I personally, I'm so glad the ICC hasn't punished anyone. I mean, we're talking, it's the middle of March in Australia. All everyone wanted to talk about this week was, was cricket. Looking at India, I mean, we... We're so used to empty stadiums. Stadiums are full. I mean, that it was great cricket, not just because of what happened between bat and ball, but because there was a lot of character and there was a genuine fight there between two passionate teams. And personally, if, if I'm looking for a leader, I want my leader to be as passionate as Virat Kohli is. It's a good point that come the, uh, the IPL, every year that's when Indian cricket these days gets absolutely energised. There will now be some fans who, when they see a wonderful IPL game, they'll think that was great. But it can't quite touch what we saw a few weeks earlier when the real, real stuff was going on. And I think that's wonderful for Test cricket. Yeah, and I echo both your sentiments. I think Virat Kohli is easy to respect because Australians love people that give 110%. And as Australians, we can respect that. I think he's gone a bit over the top in this Test match, but just stopped it from getting too far. There were instances where this game could have gone uh, nuclear and could have really exploded, but instead I think it just held between the lines where the ICC didn't have to sanction anyone. What I would like to see on that front is that with both boards now having come out and given very aggressive, supportive statements of their players, it would be good if there was kind of, to take your nuclear analogy, you know, the red phone that the um, president of the United States and um, the head of Russia have sort of as a direct line of communication between them. It would be good if James Sutherland, and the, the head of the BCCI, had had a phone call and said, listen, let's take the sting out of this just a little bit. Let's maybe issue a joint statement. Or uh, I know you're loving it as a journo um, for, for the great copy, but <laughs> I, um, and I appreciate that. I, I agree that it's been great theatre, but I think that there comes a point when you know, on my Twitter feed now, I'm seeing lots of Indians saying Steve Smith's not welcome in the country, and that you know they don't like him, and that, and I just think that it comes a point where you say let's let's celebrate the cricket and um and and hold off on the controversy a bit. That's my own maybe somewhat naive viewpoint. No, I agree. It was a fantastic Test match. England, India, well deserved the victory. The series is won all. It is a fascinating test series and on the offing and this just adds to the drama this sort of dynamic between Smith and Coley because what I like about them is they're very competitive but they seem to respect each other and they seem to be able to talk which is really good it's not like when Ganguly and Steve Waugh hardly had a word to say so I think we're, it's a it's a good series in prospect and this just adds to it I don't know if they'd be willing to talk now if I was Steve Smith I'd be reluctant to talk given that Virat Coley called me a cheater. He didn't have the courage to say it, but he implicitly said that he was a cheater. He brought it up. I would find that a, um, a fairly, you know, colleagues talking about crossing of lines, I would say that's a line crossed that if I was Smith, I'd find it difficult to have a, 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 as an amicable relationship with him as I should. But, you know, great great rivalries between two people are what makes sport. I mean, again, if you if, you, if we look at the most memorable test series going back for the last 15 years, and let's be honest, like, I love my cricket, but there's been some 
reasonably forgettable ones. The last great Indian series I recall is when they were out here in, was it 08, 09 or my Monkey Gate. Monkey Gate. 07, 08. 07, 08. This actually, what's going on has been compared to that. Yeah. And what's interesting is that Sutherland and Cricket Australia's response has been a lot stronger this time than was during Monkey Gate, which sort of indicates a shift. Well, well it's def- a lot easier when you're not... Re- um, facing the prospect of the Indian team leaving. I think they're going to be $80 million in debt if India had made good on their threat to leave. So it's easier to be st- to be firm when that's not on the table. I think it, it highlights the difference in Australian cricket and politics that we had, say, nine years ago, as opposed to now, where Solomon has immediately jumped on the back of his own players, which has to do a lot for Team Harmony because you only have to look at potentially what happened in Australian cricket in the last, say, six, seven years to see the problems that may have caused uh, back in the Monkey Gate series. So we are going to review the whole second test. We've got the commentary critique segment this week, and we've also got the overall under segment making a return after a long absence. So we've got a lot to get through, but there has been some big news for the Australian cricket team. A player that was copping a lot of stick on Twitter has had to return from India with a shoulder injury, in inverted commas, but I think it's more a broken heart. I'm talking about Mitch Marsh. He's out of the Indian tour. He's been replaced by Marcus Stoinis, who has made 172 shield runs at an average of just under 16 this series, as opposed to someone like Moses Enriques, who's made 659 runs at uh, just under 66 I think if you'd seen Stoinis play in New Zealand, you can see why they picked him. What do you guys think? I'm happy with Stoinis going across there, to be honest. I should say, firstly, I actually was probably in the minority that thought that Mitch Marsh deserved a spot in the first test, and I hope no one's just flicked off the podcast. No, I, I, I was with you on that one. Because we needed a third seamer, and he gave us that option. Look, in hindsight, there hasn't been much need for him in the first two tests because of the way the wickets have been. But there's going to become a time in this series when... Um, you know, Virat Kohli gets a roll on and these Indian batsmen do and we're going to need that third seamer, unfortunately. So in which case, we probably need a like-for-like replacement in that way. Marcus Stoinis, I was actually looking, he he played pretty well on Australian A Tour of India two years back now. I think he averaged uh, 40-odd of... Good research on your podcast. There we go. Dave, I'm I'm into it. (laughs) So yeah, 96... He scored 96 and an average of 48, so he had a couple of digs. But Macca's idea of research is while the show's on, he's looking at his phone and stuff. <laughs> so, uh, I, and if you look at the way Pat Howard spoke before this series, the Australian selectors, they were looking at subcontinental specialist players. That's why Usman Kawaja hasn't played. So, if you look at it like that, Moza Enriquez has played in tests on the subcontinent, had one good test in India, hasn't really had much success since then. Hasn't been bowling much, though. That's no. the problem with Enrique's. Stoinis is a genuine fifth bowling option. I think Enrique's, you could you maybe give him a few overs as a part-timer, but he's probably in better form with the bat. Yeah, so I'm happy with Stoinis, personally. I feel sorry for Mitch Marsh, because I think that this was... I, I wouldn't have selected him in these matches, but it's not his fault that he got picked, and I feel sad that he's he's been the victim of fair, a fair degree of... Um, uh, Vitriol. Yeah, and I think he's still got things to offer at the top level. I mean, he's had a his record's pretty un, unprepossessing, but... I mean, he, the worst headline going around the internet the last day is that yeah. Mitch Marsh is the worst ever number six to play test cricket. I think having played 20 or more tests, he's got the lowest average ever of any top six batsmen or something. Start. Yeah, that's it. yeah, I've seen that one as well. That's not... um. It's not something that would warm. I his heard heart. him say he doesn't check social media or go on the internet. We should keep that policy. <laughs> yeah, definitely keep that policy. That <laughs> yeah, uh, Stoinis did play that, that brilliant innings in New Zealand, and 
you know, he's not the worst replacement. But he does seem to be a little bit like Mitch Marsh in some ways that I'm just not sure how I'll feel about if he got a game, if he came out at four for 30 with um, Jadeja and Ashwin really on fire, whether he would get through that early, early onslaught. Enriquez seems to be in pretty good form. Um, he has not done all that much in India, though, in the past. There'd be George Bailey, who's, who's batted yeah. well and always seems like he could be a specialist in India. But I think it's probably not going to matter. I don't think that um, Stoinis will play a test match and probably the replacement wasn't going to play. Who do you think they'll pick? I think that uh, Kawaja looks as, as the favourite. What do you reckon? It's hard to see what Smith's thinking because we talked about Marsh, Mitch Marsh being the fifth bowling option. There just doesn't seem to be any faith from Steve Smith to bowl that fifth bowler. So if you don't need the fifth bowler, then you would probably go for Kawaja, the specialist batsman. I might pick Maxwell at six. I think even in that last test we lost, we probably needed someone like Maxwell to just come in and really take it to the Indian bowlers in either innings. One person I still can't believe we didn't pick for this too is Travis Head. He's a, he's a proper bat, so we're not looking at an all-round bat. He's a proper bat. You know, yes, he's maybe a little bit too aggressive, but we haven't seen him in longer form, and his shield record is relatively good, and he would have offered that fifth bowling option. It would have been The problem a- is, though, with Head is they're worried about left-handed yeah, batsmen yeah. facing Ashwin with the ball turning out of the yeah. rough. But oh, I mean, I would have, I'd be happy for Head to be considered. I think that no, that's a good point. But it's right, too late now. He's not there. So. Well, let's go back to the beginning of the Bangalore test, the second test of this four-match series. It started off so well for Australia. History was made. India were rolled on the first day for 189 after winning the toss and electing to bat. It was all about Nathan Lyon. He took eight for 50, I repeat, eight for 50, He's copped a lot of stick on this podcast, but we have to give him his credit here. It was an amazing performance. It's the best ever figures, the best ever figures by a visiting bowler in India. That's in 80 years of history. It's the fifth best ever figures in India by any bowler. It is the second best figures by any Aussie spinner ever. So it's better than Warney's best, and it's only beaten by Arthur Maley's 9 for 121 from 1920 to 21. And just to give you an idea, it's the sixth best ever in Test cricket by an Aussie bowler. I thought everything went right for him, but a great performance. It's also, would you believe, the best ever figures by an Australian in a losing cause. So it it just showed he was great, but... And I don't want to criticise him because he was great, but we kind of needed him to stand up a bit more in the second innings as well. But you're right, in the first innings... No, you're right. Exactly. I went, I think, wicketless in the second yeah, innings. Yeah, again, again, the first Australian... Best figures by an Australian bowler not to take a wicket in the other innings. So it, he was great in the first innings. He got a lot of bounce and he got his body through the crease well. And I think that's something he probably did better than the Indian spinners. But I found him wanting a bit in the second. Again, I don't want to criticise him because he took eight for 50. So it's it's hard to do that. Yeah, he was wonderful in the first innings. I've never been a big fan of his, but I think that he bowled magnificently in the first innings. He looked like taking a wicket all the time. I'm willing to forgive him in the second innings because he looked. Does he have a finger injury? He seems to be. Um... Yeah, he's, he's split a callus yeah, or okay. something. Yeah, I think he was putting super glue on by the end. To... That's yeah, the kind of thing that just takes five percent off, and that's uh, probably enough to probably have, have kept him off the boil in the second innings. But yeah, in that first innings, if he could, if, he's, if his finger's right and he can play the last two test matches at the same standard as that first innings, then Australia's in a good position. It was great to see him in the limelight for the right reasons too because he, everyone keeps looking for this next Shane... Like we, we keep comparing to Shane Warne and there's no next Shane Warne, you know, but Nathan Lyon has... He's a battler. He's, He's a battler. And off spinners tend to toil away. It's not an easy art. You know, it's one of those things that can be, doesn't look glamorous. You, you don't often talk about amazing spells by off spin bowlers like you do with a leg spinner or a fast bowler. 
So he's had to work against that. I thought one thing that was a highlight from that first day was when Virat Kohli shouldered his arms to a ball on middle stump. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't display that he's a little bit off his game, nothing is. Because we saw in the first test some interesting dismissals. This backs it up. I mean, it is so uncommon for a player of his calibre to have three dismissals in a row like that. I was going to say, do you think he's a bit, he's a bit, he's a bit hurt? Like mentally, is he, is he a bit put off? He chased a wide one off Stark, and obviously that, you know, he got a bit of criticism for that shot. It was a loose shot. Is he gone back a bit too much the other way now, and, he, and he's not wanting to chase ones he thinks are a bit wide? Probably. I think that he's he's such a good player, and he's so determined, and he knows that this is a series with which he will be um, associated. That It's great to get runs against New Zealand and Bangladesh, but... Against Australia, that's when it really counts, and he's getting—he's um, so determined. I think that sometimes that can explain when you can suddenly just, you know, have a complete uh, malfunction. And it was, as an Australian, I couldn't believe it that he just let one go that was going to hit middle stump, and then he reviewed it. It was magnificent. So the first day ended with Australia in the ascendancy, none for forty, having dismissed India for one hundred and eighty-nine. Many journalists and spectators that were in Bangalore for the second morning have called it some of the best test cricket they've ever seen. What made it so compelling and engrossing, I think, was the fact that India knew that if they let Australia go on the second day of the second test, then the series was potentially gone. Australia would go up 2-0. So they were fighting tooth and nail to claw their way back into this series. And it really was uh, two teams in like a prize fight. Um, real highlight so far. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was fantastic test cricket. I'd stop short of saying it was the most engrossing that I've ever seen. I think there are, it's just the level below that. I think that we need to criticise this pitch that it was. Uh, it produced a wonderful test match, and I think that's because the players played really well. But ultimately, it was a pitch that didn't really offer much for shot-making, and there was such random bounce that you had balls keeping low and balls bouncing high. I would have preferred that a pitch that had more life and a bit more consistency so that the better players shone through. And on that same morning, we might have seen a higher run rate and um, just as engrossing. Having said that, I think Australia made a mistake in batting so slowly. For Steve Smith scoring eight off 60, you can't fault his effort level, but I think the way he played in the second innings was um, a better way to play on that pitch. It was great just to see Australia fight. Though I mean, and I think that's why. Yeah, it's funny actually because the Australian public, going back to when Renshaw, remember when he hit something like I don't know, he scored, but in chasing was it in in his debut and he, he virtually scored at a strike rate of about twenty, and everyone criticised him. But we went over there and did that, and it, and everyone was happy to see Australia fight like that. I think it was, I think I saw a stat that was our slowest day of batting a full day since India in two thousand eight. So I mean, Australia's been Australian, the Australian public has been waiting to see our team fight and not give away that wicket and I think we finally saw that and it was it was positive to see yeah I I, I agree that a lot of people think that way I, I felt that yes the effort level was magnificent I just think that they ultimately if you're scoring at that rate then you need a lot of things to go right you yeah. need to bat for such a long long period of time and I think that had Australians all batted like Hanscom did um, that maybe we might have um, just got a little bit more and done a little bit better, but it was, it was very difficult. Um, I think as well, Paul, and I noticed during the day that Australia did try and force the pace, but whenever they did, they seemed to lose a wicket. They mm. just couldn't get on a roll. You, you saw Hanscom get out. Even Shaw Marsh started to up the rate. Renshaw was out uh, charging down the wicket, trying to hit one out of the ground. So I think it was harder to get to get the pace moving. They only scored 47 runs in that first session, which is 
It was a real limp, basically. Renshaw and Smith just blocked it out for two hours. But I thought Coley succeeded in bringing his team back into the game. I thought all the histrionics of Sharma impersonating Smith and Renshaw and all the sledging was able to lift the Indian team. And it was a real victory for Coley on that morning that he was able to bring the game closer together. And as you say, maybe he spooked the Australians a little bit and they went into their shell when they needed someone to take the game to India. I don't think that his antics spooked them into the going into their shell. I, I just think that they had that attitude that they said, we've, we've got to value our wickets really highly. And I think that's laudable. But there were just a few half volleys that Renshaw was pushing back yeah. to Ashwin. Um, I agree, though. You know, um, in the second innings when Australia had no choice but to start going for it, the first aggressive shot Hanscom played, he got out. It was, it was walking a tightrope. I just think they could have been slightly more positive. So Renshaw made 60 of 196 deliveries. Sean Marsh, who cops a lot of stick, he really held it together at the back end of that day. On the second day, made 66 of 197 balls. As I said, I was most disappointed when Hanscom got out in the first innings because he was looking good on 16 and he was looking quite busy at the crease yeah. and it looked like Australia needed that. And you look back at why Australia lost this match. The fact that on that second afternoon we weren't able to push the lead above 40-odd that we ended up and close to 100 when the Indian bowlers were tiring meant that on the third morning Australia collapsed. They lost four for seven and only secured an 87-run lead. Jadeja took six for 63. Had we been able to, as you say, Paul, been a bit more aggressive on that second day, I think we didn't even score 200 runs. So, you know, had we scored another 40, 50 runs, maybe we'd be talking about a famous victory. Easy in hindsight. Then... India batted on that third afternoon, and this is where the game really changed. Australia was not able to get through Pujara and Rahane, and uh, it was a real tough last session. We didn't get a wicket, and I thought Smith erred in his captaincy on that third day. Look, I think that, I mean, I I can forgive the collapse in the second innings because India collapsed on the final Mm -hmm. day as well. I think this session was probably the only bad session we've had in the whole series that I think um, Smith probably did bowl Stark a little bit too much. Stark wasn't terrible, but he was a little bit inaccurate. I don't think he bowled O'Keefe enough. We just allowed them to get away a little bit. They batted really well. Look, you know, these two test matches, Australia have played absolutely magnificently. um, And I think that's maybe the only time that I can have a, you know, say that they really probably had a poor session. Yeah, yeah I, I thought that was the afternoon Mitch Marsh needed to bowl a longer spell. Agree. Yeah. You know, stump to stump, hit the cracks, one might shoot along the ground. It seemed like Stark was just trying to bowl that spectacular Yorker every ball, and it just wasn't working. Shane Warne in the lead-up had been saying that sometimes in India you've got to just say, okay, let's just not go for many runs. If Mitch Marsh had bowled a spell where he bowled six overs, none for ten, and we'd got to, to stumps with them having scored 30 or 40 fewer, that might have been a success when we then did knock him over the next day. Which I guess does suggest that he does have a legitimate shoulder injury because he would have been the perfect bowler for those kind of conditions, especially sort of skidding it through. You know, it's the same kind of role that Shane Watson used to play a bit over there. Like, you know, and, and that sort of slowest seamer who does tend to have success in slow, low Indian wickets... Um, Marsh would have been perfect for that situation, but obviously the shoulder injury didn't help. So India made 274 in their second innings. The highlights for Australia, Josh Hazelnut took 6 for 67, his best figures in Test cricket. He ran through India on that fourth morning with some help from Mitchell Stark. India lost 6 for 36. And I just want to mention Steve Smith's catch off KL Rahul. I think mm. O'Keefe was bowling. It's another spectacular effort by Smith, one-handed diving. I mean, I can remember about four or five of those catches now in the last six months he's taken. He could finish up as one of Australia's great slippers, to be honest. 
Yeah, which is a big call when you consider the guys we've had there. But he his reflexes are great. That was an incredible catch. Um, it's just a pity he dropped the one a few minutes before when it went down low to his left that was probably slightly easier. Still very, very difficult. But had he taken that, um, you can't take them all, though. Wade missed Pujara early in his innings. I sort of thought at one stage during this tour, Wade would cost us a test match. Maybe that was it there. Had he taken Pujara, stayed low on the ball... Uh, would be having a different conversation right now. I don't think most keepers would have caught that. I think that um, Neville probably wouldn't have caught that either. I, I think that's pretty harsh. I've been particularly critical of Wade, as I think most people have for a while. But to be honest, he's been better than I thought he would be so far this series because there was a real concern going to India on what Wade would be like. But Yeah, I think he's done well. Mm. Yeah. So Australia was left a target of 188 in the fourth innings. Australia was all out for 112. It was a capitulation, but it was a tough target. I think when that target was set for Australia, I was realistic that it was not going to be an easy chase. It turned out that way. Paul, we had a chat after the game, and you suggested to me that maybe they should have considered taking Matt Renshaw out of the opening position for that innings. Yeah, it's thoughts like that that most people think I'm an idiot for. But (laughs) um, (laughs) I honestly thought... And look, I agree. I think it was a very difficult target. And I don't think there's any disgrace in in, in losing um, from that position. And India did collapse on that final day as well. But I thought with Renshaw, he was either going to do one of two things. He was going to get out or he was going to bat very, very slowly. And I thought in chasing that low target, it would have been better off opening with someone who whose natural game was going to score a little bit more quickly because so often Australia get marooned in chasing a small target and then it all goes horribly wrong. So I would have been wanting to promote a few people up the order to give themselves a chance to um, play their natural games and bat with freedom. And I thought that was our only chance of getting away to a bit of a, a little bit of a flyer. Um, as it was, he copped a, an unplayable ball that got out. He just jumped off a length. And then a few balls later, our best batsman, Steve Smith, had one that went underground to get him mm. out. Mitchell Stark, arguably our third best batsman in this series, copped one that rose ridiculously as well. Sean Marsh was given out when he wasn't. Uh, Warner was given out on one that if it had been a millimetre further outside off, he would have been given not out on. I don't think it was a capitulation. I just think it was batting last on a very, very difficult pitch in away conditions, and these things happen. Yeah, I've said all series that I almost count runs so far on the subcontinent as worth double. You know, if you score a 50, it's the equivalent of scoring a 100, you know, out here. So by the same token, chasing 188 is the equivalent of trying to chase down 376, you know, on the last day at the MCG or, or the SCG, if you like. So... I don't think Australia was... I know we lost six for virtually nothing to lose the match, but I don't look at it and say, geez, Australia were embarrassed or disgraced to not chase down that total. No, no, I agree. But one thing I think that came out in this last throes of the match was Australia started to lose their cool a little bit. And I think we've seen so far Australia have really stuck to their plan, worked really hard, haven't let the outside pressures get to them but I think what happened with Steve Smith and Sean Marsh when Sean Marsh was given out LBW when he wasn't out and Steve Smith said to him go as in refer it but Sean Marsh thought he meant go as in go off and Sean Marsh just walked off and his captain let him go off that should not happen that's actually embarrassing and Smith said afterwards he should have called for the replay and he should have but that just displays a little bit for me that the tough tour that everyone talks about, the heat, the off-field pressures, what's happening on the field just might be starting to get to them. And that's my only worry with two tests to go because in that situation, you shouldn't get that wrong. If you both think you should refer, it shouldn't come down to a simple word error. 
They you know, almost need to have protocols in place of like formal language that they like are. running yeah. between the wickets. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know what? Yes, no, wait. And so I used to run with someone who used to say "go," which sounds a lot like "no." God, how many Should've diamond been. ducks did I get, Captain? In your considered opinion, should I review that decision? Yes, affirmative review. <laughs> you know what's what's funny about this isn't the first time it's happened. It actually happened. Yeah, I saw over, your tweet. Yeah, it happened in New Zealand last year. Um, George Bailey. So I think Dave Warner chopped onto his pads. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he came down to George Bailey and said, oh, what do you think? And George Bailey said, go for it, which Warner took somehow. I don't know the exact words. I mean, it's he said, she said, but basically Bailey claims he said, go for it. And Warner- Who is the she in that situation? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Look, I'm not sure. So anyway, so I think in, yeah. in the... Uh- Deserved victory, a great test match, apart from all the controversy that has gone with it. Just what happened on the field was fantastic viewing. Australia, commendable performance. It's one all. I think, Scott, we were talking about before the the podcast, you'd have probably taken one all mm, at the beginning of the series after two tests. So. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people are saying, oh, well, that's it, then you run through this and win 3-1, and maybe they will. But I think if you look at it and say, okay, Australia won the toss in the first test match and beat them by 333... In the second test match, India have made no secret of the fact that they've prepared a wicket with the express aim to benefit their home side as much as possible. They won the toss and batted. I thought initially that might be uh, not a bad toss to lose, but I think in hindsight it was a bit. It was an advantage to bat first. And at the end of it all, Australia only lost by 70-something runs. So the net aggregate in terms of um, if it was a for and against, Australia, although it's won all, of course, um, have dominated the series to date. So there's no reason why Australia can't continue to perform at this level and continue to potentially go on and win the series. And I think at some stage in the next week, there'll be a little bit of backroom manoeuvring and I think the heat will be taken out of this series. This can't continue like this with Colin and Smith at each other in the press and on the field. Uh, the BCCI and Cricket Australia both issuing statements in the last 24 hours, defending their players. The, someone will have to turn the heat down between now and the next test Otherwise, it could could be just all on. I think it's good there's a few days. Uh, was it yeah. six yeah. days or something? That, that, Almost a week, over a week now. Yeah, so that'll give everything a chance to, to calm down a bit, I think. All right, so that was our review of the second test in Bangalore. Now, the commentary critique is back. Uh, we had some great insi- insights from Lisa Stalaka about her experiences in the various commentary boxes. But now, the, let's assess the Indian coverage that we're getting at the moment. And I ran a Twitter poll because Matt Hayden's been commentating and Australians actually don't get to hear him commentate mm. a lot. He's only um, contracted overseas, as he pointed out at the Allen Border Medal speech that he made, that he's a broadcaster, just not in Australia. So the poll results were, I asked whether you thought Matt Hayden was good, bad or indifferent, and I got 96 responses and it was a very positive results for Matt Hayden. 47% said he was good. 28% were indifferent. So if you're indifferent, as we've talked about before, Paul, that just means they're serviceable. And only 25% said he's bad. So I think that's a a resounding success for Matt Hayden. What do you guys think of Matt the Bat behind the mic? I think he was uh, one of Australia's greatest players. I had enormous respect for him as a player. He seems like a very decent person. I think he's the worst commentator in cricket. <laughs> you think he's the worst? Well, why? Let's flesh this out. I love this. I just can't listen to him. I just th- find him, you know, things like he said to, to Michael Clark at one point, oh, pup, it's a cat and mouse battle, but there's only going to be one big dog at left at the end of the day. He just, 
He speaks like a, ten, a precocious 10-year-old writes that they haven't realised yet that you don't have to try to display every word in your vocabulary, every sentence. I just find that he's away with the fairies a little bit and says all sorts of... He, he, got his math, he tried to show off his maths to Sonny Gavaskar, got the maths wrong, and when Gavaskar pointed it out to him, he couldn't seem to understand that um, he got multiplication wrong, and so um, he looked a bit silly. Look... Maybe other people. No, will no, find you've him, said it now. Maybe you've other people find him entertaining. <laughs> I, I just find him that um, he's not good enough to be on the air. Don't you find that if Matt Hayden all of a sudden came out and said he was a Scientologist, that wouldn't be a big surprise? <laughs> <laughs> I, to be honest, I haven't noticed him. Like, because well, you're I, in the indifferent. 28%. Yeah, I'm in the indifferent. I'll, I'll be honest. Like, there's always a lot of criticism over commentators and whatnot. I, I tune out. I end up just watching, and if I'm not interested in what they're talking about, I just don't pay attention. I actually mute them sometimes now. With Hayden on, I often have to mute him. Yes. Yeah, I find Matt Hayden's a little bit, as you say, tries a bit too hard, and he's a little bit too earnest about everything. He was like that when he was playing for Australia with his sort of religious fervour that he'd sit at the, the batting end before a test match and pray for his, you know, all this stuff. He's just... There's, he's like a sort of caricature of himself, really. Uh, so, okay, so we've got one indifferent, one bad, and I, I'm going to be in, I'm probably in Paul's category bad. <laughs> um, what about the Indian commentator that divides so many, Ravi Shastri? Again, same poll, good, bad, indifferent. Didn't get as many votes, 56 votes, but 43% said he was good, but this is where 38% said Shastri was bad and only 19% were indifferent. He is one of those commentators that is divisive, Ravi Shastri. Where do you sit, Scott? I like him. You Why? Know, I, I think A, he's passionate, but B, more than anything, when I listen to Ravi Shastri commentate, I know that I'm like he's a voice of Indian cricket in a lot of ways. So, if, but Don't you feel like he's the voice of the BCCI? He's just trumpeting what's best for India all the time. Yeah, so again, I think I fall into a category that doesn't get infuriated by commentators. So I know he's not like a Richie Benno has been around forever and I'm never going to compare him to Richie Benno, but... Well, the, you just, you are. Well, you brought it up. He's, he's the kind of person that I listen to and I, it just resonates with me that I'm listening to cricket on the subcontinent. I guess so. you have some, he has some distinction now. What do you think, Paul? I don't mind him. I quite like him. I think that he seems to be less beholden to the BCCI than he used to be. I think they all do. They all seem to be a little bit more impartial now than they once were. And I find that I found in this test match that I found listening to Shastri, Gavaskar, uh, Mandraker, especially, I've always liked. Uh, Lakshman Shivarana Krishnan, I've never been a big fan of, but I've, he's actually, I've actually started to warm to him. I found all of those Indian commentators a step above um, the Australians of Hayden, Clark, and Lee. I've always thought that Lee is a bit bland and um, okay. Clark has good insights, but can be a bit um, annoying at times as well. And personally, I, I, I was happiest when there were the fewest Australians in the box. I thought on Clark, I, I've enjoyed Clark more listening to him over there than I have listened to him yeah, over Australia. Yeah. He's not as buddy-buddy over there, so I actually don't mind him over there. And to be honest, when Clark first stepped into commentary, when he was still playing, he had those injuries, I actually thought Clark was okay. Obviously, the most recent summer, he hasn't had the best reviews, but I've, I've been to see you listen to the podcast. <laughs> he has been better over there when he hasn't had, you know, well, I guess more than he said, but he hasn't had all the, you know, Channel 9 Australian crew with him. Well, no, probably I agree. people are actually talking to him over there. Imagine <laughs> most people in the Channel 9 box don't talk to Clark when they're off air, so. That's probably true. Uh, I sort of um, didn't don't really rate Sonny Gavaskar as a commentator. He just annoys me for some reason, but I, I think it's a personal thing. Uh, Mandraker I like. 
Now, before we go on and end the show with two segments over or under and can't let it go, I just want to remind the listeners about the Have A Go Your Mug promotion. If you can go onto iTunes and leave a review for the show, you will go in the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug mug. There's only a couple of weeks left for this hot promotion, so get in there quick. Uh, the season's coming to end, and so is this promotion. So you've still got a couple of weeks, but yeah, on iTunes or any app you listen to the show, email me at oddscricketpod, auscricketpod at gmail.com, or tweet me at oddscricketpod, so I know you've left a review. Congratulations to Josh Helliwell. He was the only person to leave a review this <laughs> week, so congratulations. He wins a mug. Well done, Josh. Send me your address so I can send it out. And now... Let's go on with the show. I've brought back, because the baseball season is starting and an often used baseball uh, discussion topic is over or under. So we're going to, I'm borrowing that for this podcast. And the, the premise is I've got a stat here. I've got a, a premise. And you guys, Scott and Paul, have to tell me whether you think it's going to be over or under this stat. So my, let's start with the first one, a really easy one, a half volley outside off stump. Steve Smith is age 27. He has 18 test centuries so far. Do you think he will make over 47 test centuries or 47 and under test centuries? I think it'll be under. You think it'll be under 47 times? I mean, he is in the peak of his career, but it's very rare that someone continues this until, say, age 36. There's going to become a time where it slows down. He could score 40 test tons for Australia, and I expect him to, but 47 might be a bridge too far. So you're going under? I'm going under. Paul? Yeah, under as well. I mean, if this was a bookies, um, if the bookies were putting odds on this, they'd have that as very much the outsider, just because you need everything to go right. He may do it, and I hope he does, but <laughs> the safe bet is that he won't. Yeah, it's a safe bet, but I think he's going to do it. <laughs> uh, I'd love to see him get up. The, what did Tendulkar score? 50 test centuries or 49 something or something? Like I'd love to see Clark get up there. 27, 10 years. What's that? Two or three a year? He, he could make 60. Yeah, I think I just did the be up around 60 by the end. I'd love to see him do it as well, but unfortunately that doesn't actually translate to what will happen. He'd need something like four a year if he plays to say age 35. By my very quick maths. Good, good maths, Scott. Good You're haters. better than maths at Macro as well. Uh, <laughs> All right, Pat Cummins just made his Shield return after seven years of not playing a Shield game. He's played one Test match. He's age 23. Will Pat Cummins play 20 Tests, Paul? Yes, that's yeah. the odds. I mean, you don't know, but I'd say that more likely than not he will. God, I hope so. You'd like to think he'll play more than 20 Tests. He should play 50 Tests. Yeah, I don't think he will. I think, you know, 20 tests is a long way from here from me. I think he's, I know he's young, but his body's proven to be fragile. I think we could get a good 15 tests out of him, but 20 might be a stretch. Now, Joe Root has been appointed as the new English skipper. Alistair Cook holds the record of captaining England for 59 test matches. Some of the other players that have captained England, Strauss did it for 50 matches, Atherton 54, Gower 32, Michael Vaughan 51. Joe Root is 26 years old. He has a long, long time. Will he break Alistair Cook's record of 59 test matches over or under? Yes, he will. 
You think you will? Well, Eng- England's got to learn that you can't just keep changing captains like Australia changes prime ministers. So at some point that they just got to pick and stick. There's only six so years So you think away. Root could be captain for like 10 years? Well, 60 tests is, let's say, six years. He should do. Six, seven, eight years, yeah, somewhere around he's there. He's only 26. He should do. Okay. Yeah, I think he should do as well. I mean, the big difference is that he's a vastly better player than all of those with the exception of Cook, who he's a somewhat better player than. You know, players like Atherton really, really were, were struggling to be in a, good enough to be in a test match side. So he's going to have the advantage of that he's, that he's going to be succeeding, you would think, with the bat and averaging in the 50s. Um, he's young enough. You know, he should, he should really be in charge for 80 test matches. I think there's something about being the English cricket captain is like a, a poison chalice. And I think he could struggle. There seems to be more pressure over there from the media and pushing and pulling of the English captain than even on the Australian skipper. So I'm picking Joe Root to fall short of this record. Next, over or under, fresh from a great performance in the second test, Josh Hazelwood is aged 26 and he has... 116 test wickets after his first 28 matches. After 28 matches for the great Glenn McGrath, he had 119 wickets, so three more than Hazelnut. McGrath took 563 test wickets. Can Josh Hazelwood go over this record? He's, he's only 26. He's got plenty of time. Will he break Glenn McGrath's record? Under for me. I'd love to see him do it, but it would require... I mean, McGrath was so consistent for so long, had minimal injuries. You need a lot to go in your favour as a fast bowler to to be able to do that. And on the basis so of... Hazelwood's probably, got that metronomic action. He, he's consistent. Uh, he's hitting the peak right now. He does, but it still takes a lot for him to do that. And I think on the basis of probability, it's a no from me. Yeah, I agree. And I hope he, I hope that he does, and there's a chance that he will. You're very hopeful in this segment, Paul. <laughs> yeah, of course. Very hopeful, very but, I mean, nice. His, um, his record... At the moment, is very similar to McGrath's, but McGrath's then did get a lot better, and a lot better. Hopefully, Hazelwood can follow that same trajectory, and it's certainly eminently possible that he will, but I think the odds are, you know, maybe two to one in favour of him not doing so and not quite getting there. I'm with you, Paul. McGrath's don't grow on trees, so <laughs> I don't think uh, Hazelwood will get that close. Might break the 500-wicket mark. Wouldn't be a bad test career, nonetheless. All right, now... Over or under, 50 over World Cups for England. England have never won a 50 over Cricket World Cup. Australia have five 50 over World Cups. English listeners, if you needed um, (laughs) reminding. So 50 over World Cup for England. I'm saying over or under of one. And I'm going under. I don't think England are ever going to win a 50 over World Cup. I think ever, ever, ever. It'll probably end in the next sort of quarter of a century anyway. I don't think they'll ever get one. Australia will probably win a few more. Scotty, start this one off. Yeah, I feel like the English are going to pull this tape up in about 20 years' time if it still goes and say, hey, look, we won one. But no, it's an under for me as well. But you can never be sure. I mean, there could be... <laughs> well, of course we can never be sure. That's what I'm saying. So, um, you know, there could be a, a post-apocalyptic world where there's only a few people left. <laughs> That's and true. I'll organise a World Cup and rig it so that England win, just so, to look back on this and the memory of you guys. <laughs> well, and uh, there have to also be programmed... But you to... have to admit, they've got some sort of... <laughs> choke or something, you know. Yeah. ...problem with 50-over World Cups. It seems like every time... They seem to time their cycle that their team is in a dip for the World Cup and then comes out of it straight after. It's not just in cricket. It's in most sports they have this problem. It's like You can come back any time, Scotty. <laughs> it's like 
it's like you know you say the no more sports. We don't want to talk about other sports. <laughs> no, but it's like you say the English captain. It's the same kind of thing. It's just they send out this thing with just they got a blinker. Yeah, no, they've just blinker. been unlucky. They've they've made three finals. They lost the seventy nine, the eighty seven, and the ninety two uh, finals. The eighty seven final and the ninety two final they could easily have won. They may well win 2019. It'll be in their home country. They're a lot better at one-day cricket than they used to be. You just want to get on talk sport again, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think over. All right. Now, Peter Hanscom test runs. I'm setting the over or under on this one of 4,000 test runs. 26 Australian batsmen have scored over 4,000 test runs. To, to give you an example of who have, Simon Caddick and Ian Healy, uh, just over 4,000. A couple of people who didn't quite make it, Shane Watson and Dean Jones, just under. Paul, do you think Peter Hanscom has it in him to make over 4,000 test runs? This is going to annoy you, this answer. He certainly has it in him, and I certainly hope he does. Oh but uh, the balance of probability, one would say that you'd have to say no. Okay, thank you for that answer. It's an over for me. He's, an over? Yeah, he, he's, he should be a mainstay of the Australian test team for... A long time, and if he is, he's going to score those runs. It's a given. So you like what you see so far with Pete Hanscom? You think he's he's got it made for Test cricket? It doesn't worry you that he seems a little bit prone to edging those balls outside off stump off the back foot. I have actually been disappointed with Peter Hanscom over in India. If I'm being blatantly honest, Dan, I thought he'd be a lot better against spin. But having said that, Australia needs to pick and stick at a top order. He looks good on Australian pitches. You know, if he can play well in England or New Zealand or something or South Africa, he'll play well in enough conditions to be a mainstay and to yeah to score those runs. Yeah, I'm a bit on the fence with this one. Like Paul, I'm unsure. This is a tough one, but I'm going to I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to go over. Mm. He's young. He seems to have started well. He's so yeah. I'm going to go over, but it's it's I'm not 100 percent sure. Now, next one, IPL games. You will watch. This IPL season, I'm going to set the over or under on three for this one. I've not normally watched the IPL, but I think this IPL um, season, I'm going to try and watch a few games. So I'm going to hopefully watch more than three, get the old stream going. What about you, Scott? My card's going to be marked if I say under here. No, good because I'm going to say under. If, I, if I'm blatantly honest, I don't even. It hasn't been on Australian TV for so long. I, I like the big. I know they're different. I like the big bash because it's kind of you just get into it in Australia, but. Eventually, I get sick of watching the same thing over and over again. You love your test cricket. I do. I love my test cricket. IPL, I just feel like I'm Come watching... Come back anytime. Six, 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 four, whatever. I don't care. Well, obviously, I watch every game of the IPL because I'm afraid the BCCI will be listening to this telecast and if they, <laughs> if they, if they hear me say anything other than I'll be... Um... You contracted yet to the BCCI? <laughs> I'd love to be. I think the IPL is, you know, I'll watch every game. No, realistically, I'll watch zero games because it's not on TV and I'm not interested enough to seek mm. it out on a stream. If it was on TV, I'd probably watch it a bit casually here and there. Um, I wish it well. I think it's a great tournament, but um, a stream is a... Uh, a bridge too far for me, yeah. <laughs> unless 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 someone does want me to, um, you know, if the IC, if the BCCI want me to go over and um, uh, join Ravi Shastri in calling the games, then I'll watch them. Live, <laughs> maybe. I mean, look, I I can see where you're both coming from, <laughs> but w- when we, you and I, Paul, were covering the Big Bash so extensively this summer and talking to all the cricketers that participate in the IPL. They the way they spoke about it made me interested. The fact Agree, that, yeah. the fact that they think it is such a good tournament and the best T Twenty tournament in the world, and they talked about the excitement. It kind of brought me in a bit. So no, I don't think I'm going to be watching it religiously, but I think I would certainly like to try and seek out the stream on a few occasions this season. But like you, Paul, if it gets too difficult, I'll just. It- 
watch a rerun of Australia winning the third and fourth tests of this Indian tour. I'm surprised the BCCI haven't found a way to just... Like, I know they want to sell everything expensively, but to get those rights somehow in Australia... And, you know, some money's better than no money because I I do think people would watch it... And it also grows the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. a new audience. We are the leading cricket nation in the world. I mean, we should have coverage here. No, I I agree, but I just... I know that the BCCI would regard it and they'd say, well... Statistically, to the nearest significant figure, Australia has a population of zero. Um, <laughs> so we just don't care. We've got more people in Mumbai than in the whole of Australia. Good on you. Um, and that's a, that's the wrong yeah. attitude, but I'm sure that's their that's attitude. Fair all right, last over or under, and this is a this is a tough one, guys. This is a really tough one. How many years before a woman is batting, bowling, assistant, or head coach of the Australian men's cricket team? Now, I'm going to set the over or under of ten years. I think so. An Australian woman, or in English, any woman, as coach of the Australian men's team, I th- batting, bowling assistant or head coach? I think we could have been in a position in the next 10 years where we have a consultant. So over 10 years or under? As a consultancy? No, answer the question. You can't change the question. (laughs) Right. When will one of these people be given one of these jobs? The the full-time role of batting over 10 years. Over 10 years. Over 10 years. But we'll have a consultant within 10 years. And and I guess what you'd be looking at is this generation now of Meg Lanning's, Elise Perry's, Maybe they could take up the role I'd love of to um, a men's coach, but is there a problem though with having a woman coaching the men? No, no, no I mean, not at all. any man who thinks that is a problem, um, they're the ones with the problem. I think it's under. I think they will. Matthew Mott is the coach of the Australian women's side. Am I right in saying so? Therefore, yeah. there's no problem for a man coaching a woman. So why would there be a problem for a woman coaching a man? So you think it'll be under ten years, Paul? Cause yeah, I think. Do so. you think Cricket Australia though is that forward thinking that? You know, they would give someone like Elise Perry the batting coach of Australia in the next, you know, 10 years. I think they're forward thinking that they would pick the person they thought was the best for the job. I think that right at this moment that because women have so long been probably unencouraged and discriminated against that there wouldn't be that many women who'd be in a position to... um, to, to go for it, but I think that will change rapidly, and I think within ten years that, that that will have changed. Yeah, I hope you're right. I don't think it will happen in the next ten years. Yeah. Though I'm afraid, I think it'll be ten plus years when we see this happen. That I just can't imagine a coach of the Australian men's team being a woman. Although I think it wouldn't be out of place. I just can't imagine it being accepted in the way that we've seen. You know, the way Lehman reacted to what Brett Jeeves said about him. How would they react to you know a woman player coming in? It just seems like some elements of cricket are caught a little bit in the 1950s. All right, so that's the overall under segment. Well done. We're going to end this show in a minute with the Can't Let It Go segment. But before I go, I just want to remind all the listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, we're on Gmail, OzCricketPod, AUSCricketPod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at OzCricketPod. You can find the podcast on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Please tell all your cricket-loving friends about the show. You can listen to it on the Podomatic, the Stitcher, the Acast, the Podbean, the podcast app. There's plenty of ways to listen to it. And please, if you're a loyal listener and you've got time, go on to the Castaway Podcast Awards and vote for the Australian Cricket Podcast in the popular vote section. You have to sign up. It's a bit of a laborious process. But if uh, some of the listeners who've been with the show right from the beginning can go and do that. Love some more votes in the Castaway Podcast Awards. We'll be back in a moment with Can't Let It Go. He's given him. Oh, 
Look at that, the slow left up, and he's got six. Well done, Michael Clark. A brilliant performance by the youngster, the boy from Liverpool. He's had a fantastic series. The flags are waving. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was Michael Clark taking six for nine in the Mumbai Test of 2004. Australia lost that test, collapsing, chasing just over 100, but we left India with a 2-1 series victory uh, 13 years ago. Fond memories. Sure, sure was, and hopefully um, hopefully won't be um, a few more weeks before it's happened again. Yeah, Clark had a couple of memorable spells against India, didn't he? That one, and then the Monkey Gate test. He was the one that took three wickets in the last over, I think, of the yep, test. He, yeah, he was to, a better to, bowler than he gave himself credit for. Really underrated. All Australian captains seem to be reluctant to bowl themselves, and, and it seems a... Lazy. Puzzle. Just lazy. Just can't <laughs> be bothered. Without going off on Sandy too much, it does bring us back. I mean, you talk about fifth bowler, Steve Smith. Could be the fifth bowler. Except he, he doesn't want to he be. He doesn't want to be. <laughs> he doesn't but want to he bowl. He as a bowler. <laughs> All right. So let's end this show. And thanks for sticking with us for the Can't Let It Go segment, where I'm going to ask each of the panelists what they can't let go from the week in cricket. Let's start with our guest, Scott Bailey. What can't you let go of? ICC made a few rule changes during the week. I like the bats being smaller. Strange that they've got down to nine ways of getting out with handling the ball now being obstructing the field but what I can't let go of sorry so you can't just gloss over that on a cricket podcast oh, okay. well, handling the ball gone haven't you caught up with the news manners I didn't go into yeah, the details yet the, the law changes there's now only nine ways you can get out in cricket handling the ball is now obstructing the field I don't know how you're obstructing the field if you're patting it away from getting involved. That was bold. one of my favourite quiz questions was name the ten ways yeah, of getting out yeah now nine well, yeah, that's um just like the Pluto got axed as a planet, handling the ball yeah. has been axed as a way of getting out. It's been subsumed into obstructing the field. Yeah. So, so what can't let but you that's go? Not, well, I can let that go, just. Uh, <laughs> and me, you, you, can, you can let go of the ball. Now. I can let that, yeah. I've confused myself now, anyway. I'm confused. <laughs> man, man cat, it's back. The man cat's back. You now can virtually, I'm trying to do these actions as I talk, but you can get through your bowling stride and the point where you'd normally let go of the ball, not let go of it, and attempt to run out. Uh, so before that, you had to no, you had to take the bail off before you started your delivery stride. Correct. Now you can fake like a that you're going to go through with the ball and then just whip yeah. the bails off. As a keen indoor cricketer, it's my pet hate is the man cat. But beyond that, I don't think it's going to affect uh, Steve Smith or anything at the top level. But geez, I can see some sixth grade games <laughs> in park cricket. Just what even T20 games? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely. come down, to, you know, the last ball, you know, three required. Required the non-striker trying to get a few extra meters and bang, oh, I can man see con- cad I can controversy. See, yeah, I can see controversy. Well, I love imagine it. what sort of would happen in the third test if like Smith man catted Coley or something <laughs> and got him out. <laughs> That'd be a blow up. <laughs> I hate the man cad, but I love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul, what can't you let go of? One of my favourite cricketers, Mark Waugh, Apart from did something. Um, did something that interested me during the coverage when. Uh, when they were discussing the Virat Kohli dismissal in the second innings when he was given out LBW and um, they were talking about it, Mark Waugh made the point that had it been um, given not out and had the Australians challenged it, it would have been overturned. And Ryan Harris said, no, on impact, it was an orange light. It was shown as umpire's call. And Mark Waugh said, no, no, that's not possible. Um, impact, you can't have umpire's call. And Ryan Harris said, what? And Mark Waugh said, yeah, impact. It's either it's in line or it's not in line. And Ryan Harris said... No, and, 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 and he said, well, you could say the same thing. The stumps, it's either hitting the stumps or it's not hitting the stumps, but they do have umpire's call. And they brought it up on the screen, and Mark Hall got a shock that you could have umpire's call on impact. And I just find that 
an Australian test selector who does he watch so little test cricket that that hasn't entered into his um, uh, understanding. Maybe it was just a one-off, and he, as I said, he's one of my favourite players. And I think there shouldn't be umpires call on impact. I think that it should just be it's either in line or not. But curious one, I thought too much racing. I, I mean, if you if we were to put this onto how they. <laughs> nominate who's first past the post. I'm sure he'd be able to explain the very minor technical details, but obviously not quite interested enough in test cricket. It was amazing, yeah. That is great. (laughs) Poor Junior. All right, and I'm going to end uh, my Can't Let It Go with, I got an email here from Steve. He says, hi, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on a POM playing for your beloved New South Wales team. You must be blowing a gasket. And he says he's a loyal fan, even if he is a POM who follows from Western Australia. So thanks for the email, Steve. So he's talking about Mason Crane, a 20-year-old leg spinner from Sussex, who's inspired by none other than Shane Warne uh, to take up leg spin. He's now been picked for the New South Wales side. So far, he took two for 50 in the first innings. He's taken three seven-wicket hauls in Sydney-grade cricket or Sydney Test cricket, as some people call it. And, yeah, I can't let go of the fact that the Blue Baggers have called up a POM. I don't mind it because I think I'm not blowing a gasket because I think it sort of harks back to the great days of the Sheffield Shield where there was always an import over. You had Ian Botham, Imran Khan. You know, I think it adds to the competition having the odd import. I don't know if Mason Crane's the man, but I think, yeah, it augurs well for the future. And I don't mind these imports playing in the Shield. To be fair, we've probably Australia's probably got now footage of him they might not have had if they do come up against him on debut or something. So it's... Yeah, good on him. But yeah. where is the where are all the young leg spinners in Australia inspired by Shane Warne? Yeah, it's true. I suppose that New South Wales selected. It's come a, a different route than those superstars who've been cherry-picked to come down and play. This guy sounds like he's been playing great cricket, has performed so well. And New South Wales selectors have thought, well, you know, we might as well pick the best players available. We'll pick him. So I can't let it go. A pommy pulling on the blue bagger cap. Congratulations, Mason Crane. All right, that was the Australian Cricket Podcast this week. Thanks so much for downloading the show. Scotty, thanks for coming in. Oh, good. Hopefully you'll have me again at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, you got any exclusives you want to drop on the show? Oh, jeez, you put me on the spot. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we had a few last week. We had Lisa Stalaker announced her retirement. That was good, uh, Last yeah. week. So, um, yeah, we need to get a few Actually, more cricketers speaking to retire on the show. of female players retiring, it went a bit under the, um, under the radar, but Sarah Coit, who took... 100-odd wickets for Australia in international cricket, announced her retirement last week too. She handed back her CA playing contract last year, battled some personal issues, but she has stepped down from all cricket as of this week. So I think congratulations to her as well. Yeah, fine career. Yeah, very fine career. So uh, sad, she's only in mid-20s, but she's got some things she wants to do. Plenty of time to come on the podcast now. Exactly right. Uh, Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast again. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Enjoy the third test, listeners. And I uh, should be back next week with a preview of the third test with Gav Joshi over in India. We'll get his info from the man on the ground. Thanks again for downloading the show. Vote for the show in the Castaway Awards. And uh, tell all your friends about the Australian Cricket Podcast. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.